This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of intramedullary osteosarcoma from the pathology section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Intramedullary osteosarcomas are malignant, aggressive, osteogenic bone tumors most commonly found in the distal femur or proximal tibia. Patients are typically children or young adults that present with rapidly progressive pain and swelling. Diagnosis is made with a biopsy showing tumor cells with significant atypia and the presence of lacy osteoid. Treatment is usually neoadjuvant chemotherapy, limb salvage surgical resection, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics, intramedullary osteosarcoma usually occurs in children and young adults. There is a bimodal distribution of occurrence. The majority occur in the second decade of life, and the second peak in occurrence is in elderly patients with Paget's disease. In terms of anatomic location, the most common site of intramedullary osteosarcoma is the distal femur and the proximal tibia. Other common sites include the proximal humerus, proximal femur, and the pelvis. Moving on to etiology, as far as malignancy, intramedullary osteosarcoma is most commonly diagnosed as stage 2b, which is high-grade, extracompartmental, with no metastases. 10 to 20% of patients present with pulmonary metastases, and therefore you should obtain a CT of the chest in the workup of these patients. Know that the lung is the most common site of metastasis, and bone is the second most common site. In terms of genetics, let's talk about tumor suppressor genes and Rothman-Thompson syndrome. So in terms of tumor suppressor genes, patients with the mutations in the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor gene, or RB, are predisposed to osteosarcoma. Patients with mutations in the p53 tumor suppressor gene are at increased risk for Lee-Fromeni syndrome, which is associated with a high incidence of breast cancer and osteosarcoma. Know that the risk of intramedullary osteosarcoma is increased in Rothman-Thompson syndrome, which has an autosomal recessive inheritance and mutations in the RECQL4 gene, which is on chromosome 8Q24.3. These patients will present with a sun-sensitive facial poikiloderma rash, that is pigmentation, thin skin, and prominent blood vessels. These patients will also have absent eyelashes, eyebrows, and hair, juvenile cataracts and teeth abnormalities, and may present with osteosarcoma, fibrosarcoma, gastric adenocarcinoma, cutaneous basal cell carcinoma, and squamous cell carcinoma. Moving on to symptoms of intramedullary osteosarcoma, patients may present with symptoms of rapidly progressive pain, fever, and swelling. On physical exam, you may feel a mass on examination in these patients. Moving on to imaging, radiographs will have a characteristic blastic and destructive lesion that is described as a sunburst or hair-on-end pattern of matrix mineralization. Radiographs may also reveal a periosteal reaction, otherwise known as Codman's triangle, as well as large soft tissue masses with maintenance of bone cortices. An MRI must include the entire involved bone to determine soft tissue involvement, neurovascular involvement, and the presence of skip metastases. If skip metastases are found, this is equivalent to metastatic, specifically stage 3 disease. A bone scan is very hot in osteosarcoma, and it's useful to evaluate the extent of local disease and the presence of bone metastases. Finally, in terms of CT, a chest CT is required at presentation to evaluate for pulmonary metastases. As far as other studies to obtain in the workup of intramedullary osteosarcoma, serum labs may reveal an elevated alkaline phosphatase, and in fact, it may be two to three times the normal value. As far as histology, characteristics include tumor cells that show significant atypia and produce lacy osteoid. 
Stroma cells show malignant characteristics with atypia, high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, and abnormal mitotic figures. These patients may have mixed histology with different combinations of chondroblastic, osteoblastic, or fibroblastic-looking cells, and know that this depends on the subtype of osteosarcoma. Giant cells may be present in giant cell-rich osteosarcoma, and this is often confused with giant cell tumor of bone. In terms of diagnosis, know that biopsy is required to obtain tissue diagnosis and institute therapy. Improper biopsy techniques are associated with increased rates of complications. Know that the biopsy should be performed by the surgeon responsible for definitive treatment of the sarcoma or after discussion with this surgeon. Now let's talk about the differential diagnosis for osteosarcoma, that is intramedullary and periosteal osteosarcoma. And the diagnoses to consider include Ewing sarcoma, leukemia, lymphoma, eosinophilic granuloma, osteomyelitis, desmoplastic fibroma, malignant fibrous histiocytoma slash fibrosarcoma, D-differentiated chondrosarcoma, secondary sarcoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma of the soft tissue. The assumptions in this differential diagnosis is 1. A younger patient that is less than 40 years old, and 2. Assuming no impending fractures. So in the setting of osteosarcoma, whether intramedullary or periosteal, this presents with a destructive bone lesion in young patients, and the treatment is wide resection and chemotherapy. Ewing sarcoma will also present as a destructive bone lesion in young patients, and the treatment is also wide resection and chemotherapy. Leukemia, lymphoma, eosinophilic granuloma, osteomyelitis, and desmoplastic fibroma can all present as destructive bone lesions in young patients. However, the treatment for these are typically not wide resection and chemotherapy. Undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, previously known as malignant fibrous histiocytoma slash fibrosarcoma, is also treated with wide resection and chemotherapy, as is dedifferentiated chondrosarcoma, secondary sarcoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma of the soft tissue. Now let's talk about treatment of intramedullary sarcomas, which is always operative, and the options include neoadjuvant chemotherapy, limb salvage resection, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, wide surgical resection, and amputation. So starting with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, limb salvage resection, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, indications include high-grade osteosarcoma. In terms of chemotherapy, preoperative chemotherapy is given for 8 to 12 weeks, followed by maintenance chemotherapy for 6 to 12 months after surgical resection. 98% necrosis after neoadjuvant chemotherapy is a good prognostic sign. Expression of multi-drug resistance, or the MDR gene, tends to have a poor prognosis. This is because tumor cells can pump chemotherapy out of the cell with MDR expression, and this is present in 25% of primary lesions and 50% of metastatic lesions. As far as the surgical technique, the trend has been towards a limb salvage whenever possible. Overall survival in osteosarcoma is equal after limb salvage versus amputation to deal with local extent of disease. A rotationplasty is a great surgical option which optimizes the patient's function and most commonly is done in a pediatric population. Moving on to wide surgical resection, this is indicated in low-grade osteosarcoma, such as parosteal osteosarcoma. Finally, in terms of amputation, indications include pathologic fracture, a lesion encasing the neurovascular bundle, as well as a lesion that's enlarging during pre-op chemo and adjacent to the neurovascular bundle. Now, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of intramedullary osteosarcoma. And know that these patients have a 76% long-term survival with modern treatment. Poor prognostic factors include advanced stage of disease, which is the most predictive of survival, response to chemotherapy as judged by percent tumor necrosis of the resected specimen, 
and know that greater than 90% is a good prognostic indicator. Other poor prognostic factors include tumor site and size, expression of P-glycoprotein, high serum alkaline phosphatase, high lactic dehydrogenase, as well as vascular involvement, surgical margins, and the type of chemotherapy regimen. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, An 8-year-old boy presents with knee pain and an effusion. Biopsy and staging studies show a distal femoral osteosarcoma with contamination of the knee joint. Which of the following treatment options will provide this child with the best chance of local control and the highest level of function? And the choices are 1, through knee amputation, 2, above knee amputation, 3, rotation plasty, 4, extra articular resection, endoprosthetic reconstruction, and free flap coverage, and 5, extra articular resection, allograft prosthetic composite, and free flap coverage. The correct answer to this question is 3, rotation plasty. So while intraarticular extension of osteosarcoma is a rare presentation, understanding of the various treatment options available is crucial for the treating surgeon. Often joint contamination occurs secondary to a previous surgical procedure when a malignant neoplasm isn't considered in the differential diagnosis. While limb salvage may be possible with joint contamination, optimization of function and limitation of the number of future surgical procedures needs to be considered. Rotation plasty offers the treating surgeon the ability to perform a safe and negative margin resection while at the same time maximizing patient function and limiting the number of future reoperations. Dameron et al. review the various joint-related tumors which mimic sports-related injuries in their instructional course lecture. They suggest that appropriate preoperative imaging and consideration of malignant conditions in the differential diagnosis of any suspicious condition will increase the chances that the treating surgeon correctly identifies the neoplasm and avoids a procedure which compromises limb salvage. Kwan et al. retrospectively reviewed 27 cases of periarticular osteosarcoma, specifically looking for intraarticular involvement. They suggest that intraarticular involvement of osteosarcoma is very rare, as articular cartilage serves as a good boundary to tumor expansion. Joint contamination from an incorrect surgical procedure is a much more likely cause of intraarticular extension. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, through knee amputation is incorrect, as with joint contamination, a through knee amputation would not provide an appropriate negative margin resection and therefore contaminate the distal resection margin with tumor. Answer 2, above knee amputation is incorrect, as while this would provide a safe resection level, the level of function would not be as good as with the rotation plasty. Finally, answer 4, extraarticular resection, endoprosthetic reconstruction and free flap coverage, or an extraarticular resection, allograft prosthetic composite and a free flap coverage are both incorrect, as these would be available for limb salvage, however they would not result in as high a level of function as a rotation plasty. In addition, these procedures would likely require many subsequent operations given the higher rates of complication and the need for future prosthetic lengthening slash exchange. And moving on to the final question, what is the most common site of metastasis for osteosarcoma? And the choices are 1, bone, 2, liver, 3, lung, 4, kidney, and 5, lymph nodes. The correct answer to this question is 3, lung. So the most common site of metastasis for osteosarcoma is the lung via hematogenous spread. 
When a patient is diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a chest CT is recommended as part of the initial staging process. Bone is the second most common site. That's all for this review about intramedullary osteosarcoma. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.